you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hello, everyone. We've just finished recording our episode with Zedek Sue, the writer for A Thousand Thousand Islands and Reach of the Roach God, a fantastic Kickstarter project and RPG setting that you should definitely check out. In this interview, we talk about classical Malaysian literature, the associated culture and storytelling, and of course, ZXU's project, A Thousand Thousand Islands, and how that relates to all of those topics. So if you are at all interested in such things as the global Middle Ages, culture in general. The similarities between Eastern and Western tropes and myth, the differences between those things, as well as, I mean, we even get into the ethno-nationalism of how myths can be altered and corrupted, if you will, towards different ends. And that's not something that is restricted to Western culture whatsoever. So Zedek talks a little bit about that. That was a very, very interesting and enlightening conversation. And if you're one of our listeners who enjoys the D&D or RPG aspect of this podcast, and you want to hear from someone doing innovative work in that field right now, this interview is also for you. Yes, definitely, definitely. And please check out A Thousand Thousand Islands at a thousand thousand islands.com. You can find all the zines there that he's done, all the different little settings. And you can check out the Kickstarter, which is Reach of the Roach God on Kickstarter.com. It has been fully funded, like way beyond what they expected. I believe there are still stretch goals to meet, though, including we can make them have to write a complete bestiary if we really get people mo- mobilized. Oh. So Ooh, I'm let's here get them for up that. to that point. And yes. also, you probably just want to see this book, so you should back it for that reason. Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. The art is incredible, and it's system agnostic, so you can use it with whatever system you are comfortable with. And yeah, it's just absolutely stunning. So please do check it out. And yeah. Well, Mac, I guess I'll let you start. <laughs> Let's start with the ones about you. Uh, could you introduce yourself and what you do creatively to the audience? My name is Yirek Siu. I am a writer slash translator slash game designer from Bodixen, Malaysia. For the last four or five years, I've been making tabletop role-playing game stuff. With visual artist Mankao, we've been working on a project called Thousand Thousand Islands, which is a series of zines, fantasy RPG zines inspired by Southeast Asian sort of mouthfeel, I would say. It's not really inspired by specific sort of like stories or, or, or cultures, but just the mouthfeel of my home, because that's where we live. Mm-hmm. What the culture is. Very cool. My specialty is not anywhere in uh, Southeast Asian history or Asian history whatsoever. So I'm over here like looking at these names or reading through the annals and sort of going through what you've written for A Thousand Thousand Islands. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This is so cool. And I don't want to orientalize. For those who don't know, to oriental orientalism is a term that sort of talks about the Eurocentric understanding of Asia, Africa, etc, etc. So it's Europe as home or us and everything else as other or exotic. And you can really see this. I think one of the most horrible examples is when 
you know, for instance, Japanese women are called exotic. And it's like, really, dude, like, mm, let's let's not go there. That's not the terms we want to be using. But that's an example of Orientalism. So I'm really, really excited to get a better understanding of what you've done with A Thousand Thousand Islands and get an understanding of what you've created versus what you've pulled from the histories and sort of understand right. that creative flow. Because uh, it's it's an area that I have very little context for. So I'm very excited. As I said in our, in our Twitter messages, since we both grew up in America, as did, I think, a large part of our audience, mm-hmm. we're really not exposed mm-hmm. to like global culture outside of our little bubble. So it's mm-hmm. exciting and interesting to get yeah. to to see it represented in a way that isn't that weird, exoticizing stuff that we get here. Uh-huh. It's always pretty interesting because um, I mean, talking about the subject of how much people know about each other, it's because of the cultural hegemony of the West, but the US in particular, I grew up knowing what like lockers in schools are, even though that's definitely mm. not a thing here. And, you know, like, because the West is aspirational, in my last year of secondary school, what we would call high school, it was like, hey, we really want to do a prom. Oh, wow. It's like, it's not a thing, but because of how much television or books or whatever, you know, there's like a teenage romance, like teenage mm-hmm. romance sort of like TV is like, oh, you know, it's really, let's have the banner and everything. Oh, oh wow. Has that been something that you've encountered as you're producing A Thousand Thousand Islands? Have you found pushback against a lot of the more traditional Western RPG fantasies? Or has this been something that the audience has been very receptive to because it is something that I feel isn't shown very often. And mm. speaking as someone who has a background in medieval European history, I know that when I create something in that genre, it's been done, you know, a thousand thousand times, and I don't have the expertise or I, the mouthfeel itself to understand where you're coming from. And so it right. would feel more appropriating for me to try and jump into that area. So what is sure. what has the reception been for that process for you? Well, People seem to like zines is is what what I know of how people have received it. And I mean it, it is it is a reality that the majority of audiences in terms of tabletop role playing games are, are Anglo American. Mm-hmm. So that's the short answer. But in terms of what it feels like from the process side, it really is so Manka and I have actually talked about this a lot and like sort of tried to get our heads around this because the Thousand Thousand Islands is something that began as a research project for Manka. It was a reaction to the frustration he was having seeing sort of supposedly Southeast Asian themed or in- inspired media. Really, it's the sort of Euro fantasy tropes but putting on costume. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, Euro fantasy is not I mean, it's, it's, it's in no way a sort of accurate representation of even medieval or, or fantasy. It's a, it's a modern thing, right? Right. So, at least for us, the project comes from a desire to rehabilitate our own imaginations of what, what being here is like, not only the past, but the now. And the idea of like, does the West exoticize us? At least for me and Manka, we found that if we fixate too much on that, the project becomes a reaction to that, as opposed to really what we strive to do, which is to recenter this imagination. So it's it's almost as if to create something, to create the zines, we've got to make the jump from, yeah, you know, we have, our culture is inundated by a sort of Western aspiration to be somebody in the West. So we got to forget all that. we got to forget what the white people think of us. Mm-hmm. 
to be able to make something that is because that that's the trap that's the trap of representation is like what does the table for white people think about me so that I can get a seat there right as opposed to like you know I'm eating at my own table if people want to join us here they can come that's the most beautiful approach to a role-playing game that I've ever heard, as well as the creative process, is that I'm sitting at my own table, and if you want to come and join me, here I am. It's so opening, it's so welcoming, and it's so authentic to what you're doing. I do think that it is a there is a cost to it in the sense that because we are actively resisting the idea, the works are legible to us. So, but it may, because you're not designing for the legibility of your biggest market in mind, you may, you may be closing that world. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's what we have to do, really. It does seem to be going well for you, though. Uh, or at least that's the impression I get. We've been making these zines for four years and now we've, we're trying to make our first book. But, um, yeah, I think, What's really happened is, I know people seem to respond to it, and I think uh, that more than anything is is a sort of demonstration of the integrity of the approach. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do believe that if you write a true thing about your home, people will recognize that, regardless of whether they have the context to do it. Like you talk about familiarity of culture, I often cite the fact that why do I know so much about the Holy Roman Empire? Mm-hmm. There's no reason for me to have context for it, but it's because I was interested in it, and because I, you know, I play a lot of Warhammer, and like, you know, the the enthusiasm for your own imagination is infectious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's how I feel. Definitely. All right. Should we just jump into jump into some more questions? Do we want to start with the classical literature? Or do we want to start with the setting, Thousand Thousand Islands? Which, which way would you prefer to go, or how do we want to do this? I want to try to meet you guys where you guys are. <laughs> I suggested in our previous conversations that we talk about Sulalata Salatin or the Malay Annals and Hikayat Hangtua because I really do want to talk about these things because I, in the scheme of things, from where I am as a Malaysian person, they are actually hugely influential. Mm-hmm. to the imagination and the paucity of imagination for where I am and where I create from. It's not often that I get to speak about them. Okay, so let's start from the ground up. Let's start with the annals and go straight through. <laughs> okay. I assume that many of our audience haven't heard of these works. I had not heard of Hang Tua until mm-hmm. you mentioned this one. And I'd only heard of the uh, the annals. I think when um, when one of our listeners recommended them as a text that we could find a translation of. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wildly, by the way, the translation I did find of it had an introduction written by the 19th century governor general of Singapore. Yeah, yeah, it would it would be yeah, it would have those things. Was that like the 1851 yeah. translation that you found? That was whoo! That was a heavy introduction to right? read. Was it the Raffles introduction? Yeah, it was the Raffles introduction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are statues of him all over the straight settlements is what, what they were called. Oh, wow. So, wow. And yeah, he's a, obviously he was an asshole, but. <laughs> I assumed a man named Sir Stamford Raffles, who was ruling over anywhere outside of England, was probably a terrible person. For those who haven't read this particular introduction, the thing that really caught my attention was how he characterizes the Malay people as different to the quote-unquote more civilized Indians, but of course not compared to the British. And you're reading this like, what the fuck? Like, what are you talking about? So, yeah. 
it's amazing how far we've come from that time. You know, even for some of the stuff that still goes on, you just read something so blatant like that and you realize like this wasn't that long ago. Yeah. The part that really stuck out to me was when he criticized other colonizing powers and it was like, but we'll, we'll do good colonizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always like, oh, the, the Portuguese were like that or the Dutch were like this and like we, we're, we're way much better. No, but the, how far we've come is also because as much as Raffles is known to be a problematic figure, right, he's still lionized in Singapore, for example, mm-hmm. because he's so much part of the Singaporean imagination of themselves as a nation state. His legacy is deeply contested as late as last year, where it was, there, there was all these like symposiums and like arguments, really, wow. about his legacy. Anyway, so I learned about the Malay Annals, which is called Sejarah Melayu, the history of the Malays. His technical name is Sulalatul Salatin, which is uh, the genealogy of kings. I think it's in Arabic. The script that these classical Malay texts are written in is just use the Arabic alphabets, but they are in Malay, so it's called Jawi. So phonetically, it is Malay. And my, like for example, my father learned that alphabet in school. We use the sort of like Roman alphabet. Yeah. We use that now, Rumi. Anyway, so the Malay Annals, most people agree it was compiled by this figure, a sort of wizier figure called Tun Sri Lanang in 1612 or thereabouts. But it may have been based on a sort of previous text. It is primarily a history of the Malaccan Sultanate or the Sultanate of Malacca, popularly known to be the sort of golden age, uh, sort of ethno-nationalists will call it an empire of the Malay world. Uh, it was a big trading city. Yeah, so it is, it is a sort of history and sort of legitimization of that royal life. And we're talking, at least from what I read from the research that I did, we're talking 7th century up to when the Portuguese arrived, mm-hmm. more or less, just to contextualize it for... Yeah. For that time period. That's the span of time we're talking about. So this is not an insignificant portion of time. It's one of these things where I guess the word would be myth history. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to contrast the sort of beginning point of Sulatul Salatin with uh, Hikayat Hantua, the other text I, w- I wanted to talk about. In the Malay Annals, it begins by tracing the line of Sang Sapurba, who is the sort of like legendary ancestor of the Malaccan royal line to Alexander the Great. It is a text that, in the context of its time, is trying to legitimize temporally the lineage and the sort of feudal monarchy of, of Malacca. Very surprising to see Alexander the Great used as a touchstone. I always forget that he, like, did go pretty far into the East and was probably known elsewhere. Mm. But mm. I assume that based on the time this was compiled, there was also some kind of motivation to use touchstones that would be legible to the European yeah. reader as well. I believe because Alexander, so like it, his his Islamicized name is used, Iskandar Zulkarnain, there is a desire to legitimize oneself in terms of sort of the, the Islamic world, at mm-hmm. least in this te- this particular text. And that makes a lot of sense, especially because sort of the uh, the Western analog is all all roads lead to Rome. Everything's got to come back to mm-hmm. Aeneas. It's yeah. got to come back to Homer uh, and Troy and so on and so forth. And, you know, that's that's ancient Greece. Yeah. yeah I was going to say even the road to Rome leads from Troy. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so you've got Greece and then you've got Alexander, you know, as well, who who does sort of come from that, you know, yeah. fertile crescent as well. So we're we're coming from the same place. I think it very much mirrors the idea that most European words for king is Kaiser. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. or or sort of variations of Caesar. And this is this yes. this feels like the sort of same motivation. Uh, yeah. So that's a. I guess that's no. That's my inexpert. I have read the Malay Annals in it's sort of transliterated Malay, but I can barely remember it because reading that kind of language is very hard. <laughs> Honestly, it's not much more accessible in the translation I got a hold of because, you know, it's, it's, it not only is it very stylized, but a lot of the spellings and anglicizations of various words have changed. Mm-hmm. And of course, just trying to force a very stylized text in one language into a functional text in another yeah, language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see all the layers because for the Western audience, it's, a very stylized English text that's coming from the Malay, which has all of the Islamic influences. So you, mm. then you have all these sort of Arabic style names and, you know, then you're trying to root out, okay, where's the root myths of where this comes from? So you have layer upon layer upon layer of cultural transmission. Mm. And so then, you know, you're sitting here looking at like Singapore and you're like, okay, I think I know what that's talking about, but I could be totally <laughs> wrong. Yeah, the the sort of etymology of names and places is is interesting, and they often get discussed in these texts themselves. Like, where does the name Singapore come from? Yeah, was that a pun earlier, by the way, when you said he's lionized in Singapore? Uh, <laughs> well, unintentional, I guess. Uh, but but sure, I'll take that. Uh, I'll take the extra witticism. Well, I feel like it's also a reflection of the language and, and how, you know, Singapore is represented through that line. And that that's the word that you chose. And it's like, you know, that tells a lot about the city and the people already and how they see it. So I I wanted to talk about the Malay Annals in tandem with a text called the Hikayat Hang Tua, uh, because they are they're actually the two most important texts for the sort of imagination of the Malaysian nation state. So the Hikayat Hang Tua is basically a romance. It is a buildings romance. So it is about the figure of this hero Hang Tua. I don't think it has a known sort of compiler and it was deaf after 1641 because that's the last sort of date it references. The introduction on my version suggested that there were multiple continuators later. And so like there was an original older bit, then someone added on the bit about the Portuguese and then someone added on the... There is a... So like in my introduction, which was... uh, So my my version is a transliterated version by the scholar Kasim Ahmad. And he sort of like argues that there are two major sections to the work and like an earlier work where Hang Tuah is this warrior hero and a later work where he is this diplomat Mm -hmm. and so like there's a clear distinction in tone so yeah it is if the Malay Annals is a sort of Islamicized text this this one is much less so this one takes a lot of the name styles and the references are more to the sort of pre-Islamic sort of Buddhist Hindu sort of like Sanskritized history of of the region so like the the sort of origin story of Sang Saporba in this text begins by saying that he is the son come down to the holy mountain and his parents lived in Kerinderan, which is a which is kind of like a heavenly sort of realm so that's where it lends its legitimacy so Hang Tua lives for a very long time so my observation is that if it's if it wasn't verboten for a Muslim text to, text to say so, he would be called a demigod. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk about this text specifically. I've tried reading it, but I've, I haven't got very far. The reason why I want to talk about it is that it is the most referenced text 
for sort of Malay Muslim ethno-nationalists in Malay. This is all to do with the sort of like a sociopolitical, internal sociopolitical landscape of my context. And I am ethnically Chinese Malaysian, fourth generation Chinese Malaysian. And there is a, shall we say, a antagonistic sort of relationship between the Chinese ethnic groups and the Malay ethnic majority. And uh, Hang Tuas, Hang Tuas most famous quotation is Takkan Melayu hilang di dunia. Never will the Malays vanish from the earth as a kind of like it has been spun as a supremacist thing. It can become a rallying cry. Yeah. Uh, it is often a rallying cry by a sort of like Malay ethno-nationalist part, like political parties. That's the quote on the back of the edition I got. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and the irony is that phrase is nowhere in Hikaya Hantua. He never says that. Wow. That, that exact sort of quotation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I, I definitely didn't <laughs> don't remember him saying that. It wasn't in there. I just finished this book two days ago, and it did not occur to me that, hey, that back of the cover quote wasn't actually there. Yeah, so it's like, um, it's it's one of these things where, and I think it, I think it says something about a sort of the culture of myth-making that a nation-state has. I mean, like, a, like Thailand has its own sort of, like, myth-making of, like, where it comes from and the legitimacy of its, its, often with Indonesia, it comes from the idea of the Majapahit Empire and sort of texts like the Pararaton, which sort of legitimize and sort of romanticize the Majapahit sort of, uh, and uh, for us, it is Malacca and Hangtua and Malay, the Malay warriors specifically, and which is yeah, which is hard because the texts are interesting of themselves, and very often the the people who are using these thing for nationalist ends don't know the text. Yes, yes, that's that's very very common with a lot of the I suppose even some of like the the German myths that we see or like Siegfried and the Dragon we have the it's the same problem here. That was one of Tolkien's like he was so mad at Hitler for corrupting what he considered national myth to his ends in that way. There's mm-hmm. a really excellent old letter from Tolkien where the uh, Nazi Germany had sent him a letter like asking, we'd like to translate <laughs> your book into German. But uh, Mr. Tolkien, we have to ask you first, you're not Jewish, are you? And he sent them back this very <laughs> oh letter going like, Rather than make y'all listen to Past Mac half remember this, I'm going to read some relevant selections from that letter right now. I do still recommend looking at the whole thing. If I am to understand that you are inquiring whether I am of Jewish origin, I can only reply that I regret that I appear to have no ancestors of that gifted people. My great-great-grandfather came to England in the 18th century from Germany. I have been accustomed to regard my German name with pride. I cannot, however, forbear to comment that if impertinent and irrelevant inquiries of this sort are to become the rule in matters of literature, then the time is not far distant when a German name will no longer be a source of pride. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I recommend mm-hmm. looking it up to anyone who hasn't read it. It's it's very good. I think he also said something about like Hitler's squat nose or that he wanted to like punch him in the face or something. I was like, all right, you know, that checks out for Tolkien. But anyway. Yeah, not too but, shabby, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the corruption of, I don't even want to say national myth, but historical myth and cultural myth into, you know, an ethnic. Into the national myth. Yeah, into I would the say. national myth uh, can be very, very dangerous and very frustrating 
for people who do mm. appreciate the original work. The, I mean, the, the idea of the national is very modern. Like, mm. uh, it's particularly acute in Southeast Asia because all our borders are basically colonial borders that have become national borders. Mm-hmm. Before, before the arrival of the Dutch or the English or the Portuguese or the Spanish, it was, these were basically large trading cities that exerted a sort of Mandela of influence. They didn't have borders and they definitely didn't think of themselves as racialized or ethnic nations. It was always the king who is divine and whoever pays homage to him is typically a him, is part of that city. Mm-hmm. So famously, a lot of South, ancient Southeast Asian cities had quarters. Like, uh, I mean, the, the ancient cities of Thailand had Japanese quarters and Malay quarters. There were a lot of like, uh, there were major quarters in Malacca itself that were that were communities of people who were from the Philipp- from the Philippine Islands. So there was all this porousness. Yeah, I, I I think it is a it is a demonstration of that reality that. I know about these particular two texts, but n- uh, nothing about the rest mm-hmm. from Thailand or, or the Bugis texts or the Indonesian texts, or, which are all contemporary and all about the same thing, basically. But yeah, I don't know anything about them. That makes sense. When we were talking earlier, I mentioned what texts we'd been recommended by a listener, and they're not the same as your list. And maybe that's because the listener is from Indonesia, and they're and even though like they're neighboring states crossing the border means you have yes. like a bunch of different ideas about what text is important. My favorite anecdote about this reality is that it it is cheaper and quicker for me to send a letter to the UK than to Singapore. Oh, wow. Wow. And it, this is same for the Philippines to America versus to here. We have closer ties to our colonial metropoles than to each other. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> I'm sorry I went on a tangent. Oh, no, no, no. Not. Never apologize for tangents. We are all about tangents here. I had been actually hoping to hear a lot about the project of nationalist mythmaking that you'd mentioned, because that sounds... Fascinating. And one of the things that we do like to address is how people use and misuse these texts in the modern era. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is something that does come up a lot. Our crop of ethno-nationalists over here likes to appropriate Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's something that comes up when we, whenever we talk about like the Icelandic sagas or anything going on in, mm-hmm. in Northern Europe. And just like this quote that apparently doesn't show up in the text, <laughs> a lot of the stuff that we get from our group of ethno-nationalists makes it clear that they've never read the text they're basing it on either. They don't know how weird the sort of stories behind those things, those yeah. symbols are. Because mm-hmm. the, the tendency always is to make this into a really macho sort of myth, right? Whereas mm-hmm. these, these texts were, I mean, today we'd call, call them quite queer, but that concept didn't exist. So the Whatever standards of masculinity are in Hangtua, for example, is, would be very, is very incompatible with the sort of modern idea of what being a Malay male is like or mm-hmm. should be like. One thing that I found interesting about what you were talking about with the Hangtua is you mentioned that there was the part where he's sort of the warrior and then also the diplomat. And something I've talked about previously on the podcast has been examples like Beowulf, who, uh, or like any of the protagonists, I won't call them heroes because that's an iffy term, uh, but any of the protagonists in the Icelandic sagas, in order to be considered like the hero or the, or the cultural mm. icon they are, they need to be both warriors and poets, for instance. And mm. so it's mm. interesting that you mentioned that there's a section where he is a warrior 
warrior and also a diplomat. And I'm wondering specifically whether you think that's something that two different authors and two different cultural periods like kind of smush together or whether that appears kind of integrated into who he is as a character, even if they are in different sections. I mean, because we, because the providence of the compiling is so unknown, we like, so there's a, there's an early bit, uh, early on where it's like talking about his uh, sort of childhood life. <laughs> and he goes to the Indian scholar and wants to learn the language from him. And then he goes to the Chinese scholar and wants to learn the language from him. So it's like, there's this thing where it's like, before the age of whatever, whatever, Hang Tua knew how to speak 12 languages. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you're not sure whether that's a later edition that was inserted. So, Kasim Ayman's argument is that because the tone is so different, it may not. He argues that it may sort of represent the sort of shifting idea of what the ideal Malay male should be. Mm. His argument is that the later parts were written after the fall of Melaka, where there is a there might have been a sort of soul searching about who, what it means to be a person in 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 the world when when you're past your sort of civilizational zenith and past. Mm-hmm when you have suffered a loss in confidence as a people, who are you really? Which I found quite interesting. Just for a little bit of extra context for listeners who are not familiar with the text, the fall of Malacca was when the Portuguese took over the mm. city. So sort of like the, the fall of Constantinople before it you know, became Istanbul, so on and so forth. It's it's one of those cultural touchstones or fall of Rome, etc. It's a major shifting point for the culture. Some context yeah. that would maybe cast this, this idea of soul-searching post- fall, the diplomatic mission that Hang Tuo goes on in, in the end of the book is he's going to Istanbul to buy weapons to yeah. resist Portuguese colonialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like that that does seem to kind of yeah, it's fit a, with that idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, you, Zoe, you were talking about the these idealized figures, what they have to be to be ideal. It is also worth mentioning that so a big part of the focus of attention in Hikaya Hangtua is a duel between the figure of Hangtua and the figure of Hangjabat, another sort of warrior, one of his five brothers, basically. Hangtua was part of five Buddhism brothers. And there is a thing where, so this, the story briefly abridged is, it goes like this. Hangtua gets a lot of favor at court. Like the rest of the court get jealous. They tell the Sultan that Hatua has been uh, sleeping around with the palace sort of concubines. The Sultan orders him killed. He goes into exile and is presumed killed. Hanjabat, when he hears about this, he r- runs amok and basically goes on a killing spree across the city of Malacca, occupies the palace. And the Sultan goes back to Hangtua, says, We're in trouble now, and you are a great warrior. You need to kill your brother. And Hang Tua, because he is the ideal feudal subject, says, Daulak Fangku, you are my leech lord, I will obey you. They have a duel and Hang Jubat is defeated. This is one of the sort of eternal things in the scholarship of this text. It's like, who is the be- who is the greater hero? Mm-hmm. The rebel who is rebelling against an unjust action by the Sultan or the person who, through thick or thin, is loyal. Mm. And... Uh, Hikayat Hantua, because it is a court text, just like the Malay Annals, it's clear that its its hero is Hantua. Right, but that room is there. One of the very interesting things I enjoyed in how they characterized Hang Jabat is when they're setting him up as a villain and making it clear that he is meant to be seen as the villain. Like, they, they have him kill everyone else in the occupied palace for just, just because. <laughs> and yeah, his yeah, explanation yeah. is, if you're going to be the villain, you might as well go all the way with it. 
And I thought that was great. I, th- I thought that was a really, <laughs> a really interesting character note. Incredibly compelling. Kashimama has this has this interesting convoluted argument about the who is the biggest hero thing in the introductory of my of, of the version I have. He says that obviously the text considers Hang Tuwa the, the hero because he is the perfect model like feudal subject, but because Hang Jiba is so compelling, despite the compilers of the author's intention, you know, like there is a case to be made that the heroic qualities of this character should be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, the hero, I mean, the heroic or villainous of just significant. Yes. I think that brings up one of the questions that both Mac and I had, sort of like a, this is a bit of a tangent, but I noticed, and Mac definitely noticed, a muck popping up over and right. over again, which is very, like, we've heard the phrase, like, oh, yes, yeah. run amok, but to see it used in that way was something that I didn't expect, and I figured there right, was right, some right. extra cultural understanding behind that. There must be, because when I looked it up, I found out that our word amok is just a borrowing of the Malay word. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Whatever understanding we have of it is like a surface level, and it's very significant in these texts. There's always amongst happening, so I'd I'd love to know what's behind all that. I'm a layperson again. There's, there's the, the disclaimer, but I think it's so. It is definitely part of Malay culture, an accepted part of Malay culture. That in as much as the sort of ideal is a sort of gentle and like sopan santun, sort of gentility of manner, and like politeness is one of the highest virtues uh, in sort of traditional. Malay culture. There is also a release war for that in that. And a mark is typically a masculine thing. It is a thing where after a long period of brooding over some sort of social, usually social injustice, uh, a male person will take up a weapon and basically go on a killing spree. So it is often said to be the wind of the tiger spirit descending. So there is a sort of mystical element to it. And it is a, it is an accepted rupture of the sort of social order where it's like, yeah, okay, this person is under a lot of pressure, he will run a market. Mm-hmm. I think it's the case where, you know, after a person who run, often they die. So it's, it's mm. sometimes read as a sort of way to commit suicide when in a culture where suicide is very, uh, is not acceptable. And if the person survives, they will, they will be amnesia. Mm-hmm. And it is in the culture to say like, okay, fine, that's, there's no sort of, there's no like sort of legal ill will towards you, kind of like that. And uh, yeah, that's as much as I know about the, that. That is fascinating. I, c- I can definitely see like parallels to things we've, but I don't know, it seems more interestingly codified. I think um, the latest sort of, one of the latest happenings of a person going amok happened in Kuala Lumpur in 19, as late as 1987. So there was this army private who took a, like, a M16 rifle and started gunning people down. It was a, it was a big thing, obviously. But. Wow. While we're on vocabulary, you did use another <laughs> term uh, in, when, when you were retelling the story that I saw coming up a lot and that I feel like I, I don't have a full understanding of. What is Daulat? Daulat is the the sort of divine right to rule, I, I would say. I mean, it's, it is a word that doesn't really have an equivalent in the English language, but it's kind of like the sort of Chinese concept mandate of heaven in that. Because the Malay kings are divine, I mean, they are, they come from divine lineage. So it is a sort of, I mean, it's not quite Islamic, but it is a Malay thing that loyalty to your feudal law is a kind of, is sacrilege to not be. Derhaka is the opposing term to Daulat. Derhaka is treason and it doesn't, it's, 
even sharper in tone than the English equivalent. Mm-hmm. The haka is a sort of like your it's a spiritual failing. These these concepts and the fact that both of these texts are, are leaning very heavily on like the divinity of the kings and the pomp and ritual and, and excess of the court. Mm-hmm. Does this interact with the idea of this being like a nationalist myth? Yes, because Malaysia is a constitutional monarchy. We have the largest concentration. I, I believe this is this is true. The largest concentration of feudal monarchs in any nation state. We have nine, I believe, for every one of the states that have sultans. And the Agung, who is the king at any one time, is the families take turns being the sort of apex monarch. And it is part of as in the post-colonial age, is part of the sort of Malayan or sort of Malay Muslim identity to have a king. Because the king is the keeper of the Adat tradition and the agama, the Islamic religion. As opposed to all these other white people who don't have the king, don't have their kings anymore. So this is one of the ways in which we are distinct and we are we have to retain. So in terms of as a society, the, the sort of feudal mindset sort of permeates everything in this deeply contentious because yeah it's it's um it's not as codified as in thailand where the king is a cult of personality and you are punishable by law but if you say anything bad about him we don't have less majesty rules here but there are definitely a few of the sultans who do sort of have a cult of personality mm-hmm. yeah so it's it's part of that sort of like national self-conception like a few years ago I was at a Georgetown Literary Festival where they were there was a panel that became an argument really on stage about Nikaya Hagdua and one of the I think it was Azai Ibrahim he's a, he's a scholar he says that these texts were court texts Hagdua is what a monarch wants you to become mm-hmm. is this really what we are what we're going to keep upholding as a model for how to be in so I thought that I mean it's it's a yeah it's a it's a great question. That's a very good question, and it it is I think a fair characterization of what's going on in the text is as mm-hmm. you said earlier, Hong Tua's like highest virtue is that he is unfailingly loyal, even to a king who just right. wanted to kill him. Right? Right. The whole right. the whole thing about the story is that his friend was angry because the king wanted to kill him. Then now you're going to come and kill me. For being angry for kill for yep. our king wanting to kill you, what the hell? The the central tension of the text just personified. That's fantastic. Mm. All right. So yeah, I mean that's my whole spiel. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's very very good. One of the things I wanted to make sure that we we touched on at some point, mostly for our own benefit, um, is there anything that we should know uh, about like the literature of this place and time in general? Like, it, if say as we may well do. Uh, we eventually have an episode where we do stories from the annals. What would be important for us and our audience to understand in order to uh, treat them the way we should? This was part of the list of questions you sent me, but I'm, I'm really not sure how to answer it. I'm not a classical scholar, but also it's hard to see what how other people might view the might view the text. I would I would say like, one of the things is that the sort of tone of fairy tale or myth myth in the sort of stories. So this is my own thing. I do feel like before the arrival of sort of the colonial era, a lot of text, a lot of life in general, and even now is taxonomy wasn't really part of. So like animal stories, for example, there are lots of stories involving animals in these two texts. The animal is so. What is the tiger? Is it an animal? Is it is it a spirit? Is it a person? Because tigers are often shapeshifters. Mm-hmm. Does does the todas, the swordfish that attack Singapore, are they of malicious intent or not? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there is no distinction between the animal and the human in that sense. In the same way that is there a distinction between the gods from from Indira come down to rule in court? There's a difference in terms of prestige or like, uh, but really we can touch the, the king. Yeah. It's just that we may not want to because of, you know. So the idea that gods and spirits and things and places and people are all of that particular geography and that when you travel to, I guess the interesting thing about how, how to travels around is that whenever somebody travels to any place, it's like, who are the gods there and what is, what is the culture there? Mm. Because it is just a cosmology that the gods of a place have power of their ge- like kings have power over their particular geography. I think it's a innovation of the modern sort of colonial age that Christianity is true and wherever I go, Christianity will be true. I think that's a very, it feels very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And also sort of Islam, although Islam also was less strict about this when it arrived here. So was that feels like when when you're talking about the the mouth feel of how you create these stories and the the history of of Malaysia and where you are the idea that different gods rule over their different geographical areas and as you travel you have to learn the culture of each one feels mm. very very integral to how you've designed a thousand thousand islands in particular mm. um, especially yeah. just from from the setting itself and the zines that you've done you've got you know i i had a blast looking through each one of the different settings going through like oh what's gonna be in this one what's gonna be in the next one right 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 and and there's this unique culture to each one of them and i guess to me as i was going through them it felt like i was like pulling back branches as i was going through a forest or Mm. not even flipping the next page in a book because that's very binary but more like the deeper i got the more i was interested in seeing what was there which i thought was a remarkable Mm. thing to be able to do in a setting that wasn't as written out as we see in a lot of like D modules it's like okay here's the adventure here's the dice here's the npc and yeah exactly and and instead what you've done is for me as i read it and now i'll go on my little tangent of, of writing and wanting to know how you got into this but to me it felt like reading poetry as opposed to reading a guide to a module which i i adored and one of the words that i come Thank back you. to oh no it was it was absolutely stunning i'm sitting there like i'm going to study these for my own writing like no no kidding i really really <laughs> loved reading them but anyway in in old english there's a there's a word uh, mode which is spirit right or heart it's sort of the the yeah. same thing the same idea all internal states are the same it's mind heart and spirit all in like one word all mm. all in one mm. which when i find um a very interesting piece of writing to me it lights it lights that up for me it's mind body spirit it's all of it the whole thing and so as i was going through i was like that's exactly what you've done in each one of these little settings and so for one i i found that incredible because it did read like poetry to me and going through and finding each individual little island was its own discovery and you've created Hmm. a setting that players can really do whatever they want with it. It's not super structured. And so yeah. I guess going back to the original question is, 
in understanding the Malay Annals and understanding each little area has its own space, is that something that was integral or even conscious when you were creating this? Or was this something that, as you say, you had the mouthfeel of where you live and it just sort of came forth in that way? I think, uh, first of all, thank you very much. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a long, long convoluted question. There was a winding path to get there. So, <laughs> um, I, I think our process was, I mean, our process didn't start from the first principle because it was really an exploration to begin with. But as we were sort of reading and sort of learning and sort of understanding ourselves, it did become more overt or conscious, this idea that uh, every every zine we write has to be written as if it was written by its own. So it is the center of its own universe. Mm. The thing with a lot of like sort of RPG created settings is that you start by, you know, like the pantheon of gods created this world mm-hmm. and like all the territories are like, like so on and so forth. For us, it's like we don't have an overarching cosmology. We don't have an overarching, we don't even have an overarching geography in this like it's a point that we don't make maps for mm-hmm. the islands. Often the zines will have their own cosmology and creation myths. And it's important that all of those stories are true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though, especially when they're contradictory. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's how people used to behave. I mean, like, when, if you're a Japanese person and you traveled across the ocean to live in Thailand, you're not going to say that the sort of spirits of your homeland are not here. You, But the thing is, you, you are able to bring them with you. But the gods of Thailand and the beliefs of Thailand are there already. Mm-hmm. And they may very well, they often are contradictory to how you learned, oh, this place was created this way. And you know, like, you learn to live with the two of them together. And I think that's true for, like, somebody like me, for example. I grew up in a very, very Protestant Christian home. My father was a Presbyterian sort of reverend. But yeah, you know, like, it gets transposed into, like, oh, the devil or evil spirits. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, don't go out in certain times of the month uh, especially during Hungry Ghost Month, for example, things that you're not supposed to believe in because these things don't exist according to the sort of like, especially the sort of uh, evangelical Christian thing. But you don't want to disrespect them, right. the things that right. don't exist, you right. know? Mm-hmm. But much like in, for, for our Western readers, like in Iceland, Iceland officially converted to Christianity over a thousand years ago. Christianity does not mm-hmm. believe in elves. Iceland does not like to build roads in places where there might be elves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, there, there is this. I always go back to this story, which I cannot find the source for anymore. But it was an article that I read, sort of like a account of the harvest festival in Borneo. So the the indigenous peoples of Borneo are now largely Christianized. But the harvest festival is obviously a sort of pre-Christian thing. And like the interviewer quoted somebody as saying, like, "Okay, we are going back to the hotel tonight. We are not sleeping at the longhouse." Because the longhouse is full of uh, spirits on this particular evening, and they are angry that we don't no, no longer believe in them. Mm. So let's not mess with that. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's I found such that an really interesting cool. statement. They're angry that we no longer believe in them. Because like it both makes sense and is self contradictory, but overall, like yeah, I can't. That was very eloquent of me. Overall, yeah. <laughs> For me, it makes a lot of contextual sense. I, I think we see this a lot when it comes to early English myth or Irish myth, things like that. And as I've gone through sort of this study of magic in particular in medieval magic, it's less that, oh, no, the Norse gods don't exist. It's or and, you know, or spirits don't exist. It's more that, oh, what we have called the Norse gods are spirits of some sort They're but they're not the 
Christian God or so Mm. on and so forth. And so I think that we, especially in the West, tend to modernize and sort of atheize. um, Is that a term? I don't know. It's a term now. But we sort of, we tend to do that, or or a lot of Christians make their faith a binary, where it's either yeah. God exists and no other sort of spirits exist outside of this whatsoever, and that yeah, wasn't... Yeah. Which is why I was taught in Sunday school. So. Right, but that's that's historically not true, and I think for a lot of Christian history, that certainly wasn't true, and it's something that yeah, we, yeah. you know, we tend to forget about, and so that's something that's very interesting to me in studying magic, mm-hmm. and so when you talk about these, you know, spiritual elements of... Of, there are gods in these other places, there are spirits in these mm. other places, and it's important to respect that, not only for social norms, but also for spiritual reasons. And I think that's yeah. that's very, very telling and something that we tend to forget, especially in such a Christian, uh, or at least in the West, in such a Christianized space. It's, um, like you mentioned magic, another thing that sort of illustrates the, is related to, to what we're talking about is that, for example, traditional healers so like where where I live, if you are spiritually troubled, you depending on your ethnicity you might seek out a Taoist priest or a or Hindu sort of priest or a Malish imam or shaman. And depending on your particular ailment, they might tell you, okay, this ailment I can't deal with. You need to see like a Hindu priest, for example. So you you will get referrals like a doctor with a speciality. You will get a referral for for, for each other. And I mean, one of the typical things that is typically said is that if it's a really, really intractable case, it's like, okay, we can't deal with this. You've got to go north to Thailand because uh, Siamese magic is the strongest kind of magic in the region. It's popular. So there's there's that thing is sort of like Muslim imams who are technically not allowed to acknowledge this. Mm-hmm will tell you to go see a Buddhist priest. Because, you know, like, it is it is a legitimate problem. What are you going to do about it? So if orthodoxy is one thing, but you've got a sickness. We have to be practical. So that there's that idea of practicality informing all layers of society, including its relationship to cosmology or whatever else. Very interesting. I don't know if you noticed our reactions to that, but I think both of us sort of went, what? Huh? Because that's such a, that's such a foreign concept to us in the right, West. Right, right. And I suppose just this might be a tangent, but my follow-up question is, how does that integrate with, I, I suppose, physical medicinal practices? Because I know, I think, thankfully, the West is sort of adjusting to this idea that, yes, you can have a spiritual malady that interferes with you physically and vice versa, mm-hmm. uh, which the East has long been aware of and has treated. So I suppose I'm wondering how do those realms interact? Because to Westerners, it's very, very much a binary of like, oh, you have a mental disorder or whatever, and we treat the physical, but we forget that the spiritual is something that is so unique to the person, and you do need someone who can help you in a spiritual way. There are many ways to think about this, and like oftentimes also for people like me personally, it's like, oh, you want to be modern, so can we not be so superstitious? For example, but the thing about it is that we we kind of are because these things are are, are basically real, uh, and you can argue about sort of like split hairs about is this spiritual ailment actually a form of mental illness? Mm-hmm. But so like whatever that ailment was, there were there were sort of he- healing rituals to address them. For example, the practice of mind poetry for uh, is a is a healing. It's a dance and a performance and also a healing ceremony practiced in uh, Malay communities, especially in the north of Malaya. And it is 
so like somebody is possessed by a spirit and to address that the, the Mayan poetry ceremony invites other spirits into the, the person's body to sort of like Again, it's the idea of diplomacy. It's like, what does the spirit, the possessing spirit want? And what can we do to come to a court where the, the person is no longer bothered by this thing? And it's a ceremony that the entire community comes to. So I, I, I had an interesting conversation with somebody who pointed out that the question of whether or not this... Well, is there a spirit possessing a person? That's not really important. Mm-hmm. Because... If anything else, it is form of like the entire community is acknowledging that there's there's somebody who needs help, mm-hmm. and the whole community is coming together to acknowledge that we are we are responsible collectively for the well-being of the whole, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very powerful way to deal with sort of mental or social illness, which it sort of individualized rational medicine may not be able to address. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mo- modern modern medicine and culture is very like individualized and almost isolating. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Talking about the thing is like, and how they coexist is that you, like, for example, we have like some of our neighbors, we've talked about this before. It's like, oh, I was, I was ill today. This thing has been bothering me. So I'm, I'm going to the GP, obviously, because I need the, the Panadol or whatever, the aspirin. And also I'm going to drink some water from the priest. Mm-hmm. Why not do both? Yeah. Treating the body and treating the, the spirit is part of treatment. So. Yes, absolutely. That's something that I think we see a lot in, in the leeches corner. When we go over some early medieval mm-hmm. medicines, sometimes we'll see something that's like, okay, apply this treatment and also say this prayer and all will be well. And you do have to acknowledge that these things go hand in hand. Which is definitely something that we're, we don't really do in, at least in, in modern America, is something that we've, I guess, forgotten mm-hmm. works. Like, it's, it's only fairly recently that we've even come around to the idea of, like, an exorcist might refer someone to a psychiatrist. You're never going to, you're still never mm. going to get a doctor referring you to a priest. And I can't even imagine, mm-hmm. like, a Christian faith healer saying, oh, go see a Buddhist. Yeah, yeah, that would be... The, the idea of integrating <laughs> all of this in order to, like, well, what works is something that, that we don't have. I think um, I'm going out on a huge limb, but I would think, I would imagine that the, it was useful to forget these things for certain aims and purposes. Oh, for including sure. Including imperialism and capitalism Mm -hmm. because it is easy to control a population when your cosmology is the only right one Mm -hmm. i believe you are correct there that's (laughs) like obviously like i i can't say that it's definitely that there was some shadowy cabal that decided we're going to shape culture in this way but it, it it does kind of feel like that is a direction in which capitalism has pushed us for its benefit oh haven't you seen that amazon has its own pharmacy now all hail jeff bezos (laughs) <laughs> Does it really? That's just terrible. Yeah, yeah. It's really. It's, it's interesting how out. these forces can. I mean, they they do arise. I mean, there's no cabal. I don't think it's just sort of tendency. Yeah. It's like the idea of a of an emergent mm. force. Like if if you get a bunch of people together and give them a goal. They will. They as a group will make decisions that were different than they as individuals would make. Mm-hmm. I think uh, as so, like we at, at least. In my sort of conception of what Southeast Asia, the region of Southeast Asia was, it's uh, because it's always been an in-between place. It's always been, everybody's passing through here, more more or less. So 
we're, we're pulling everything from every like there's no systemized thing whatsoever but after colonialism and into the sort of nationalist age there has been a drive to sort of systemize that's why you know the Malay Muslim warrior is the only imagination I have now one of the reasons why we made a thousand thousand islands is because everything else has been paved over yeah. all the different kinds of ways to be has been collapsed into this male tengkolot wearing that, 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 that sort of like fabric hat the caress mm-hmm. and loyalty to the king mm-hmm. when the long history of the region has so many different kinds of ways to be so really it's reacting to that drift towards a singular thing so like resisting that singularity so sort of jumping jumping back into that something that we sort of touched on is this fairy tale or ahistorical feeling that these have and it seems like that's pretty integral to the annals themselves and sort of how they're told and I was wondering if you could touch on that and also on how we might see these stories and how they compare to sort of the western idea of a fairy tale because there's a lot of common elements but there's also a lot of right. things that differ. Yeah. One of the ones that stood out to me in that sense is um, the story you alluded to earlier and that I do want to come back to at some point for another question with the swordfish where it's like they, they, yes. ha- they have this problem with the swordfish and a little boy comes up with the answer and mm-hmm. like it's yeah, an incredibly yeah, yeah. obvious answer but like that's like the fairy tale it's like the, there is a monster the menacing the yeah. kingdom and the little boy uh, has the solution it's a very fairy tale feel it's a very practical solution that nobody seems to have thought of <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and for his for his reward I think most popular versions of the story the king has him killed because he's too smart yes yeah that was that was my translation was oh they told the story in both of these texts and it was slightly different because he had like a name and a family history in Hong Tua mm. But mm-hmm. both came out in the same way as people decided he was too smart and they had him killed. Yeah, there's there's definitely that sort of element, that, that feudal element of like... I think it's related to the ideal of like... To be seen as overly ambitious is a death knell for your sort of... Mm. Because you're not supposed to be because you are subject to the king. For example, I mean, a real-world example is that our, our forever deputy prime minister, Anwar Ibrahim, who was leader of the opposition for... Politically, one of the reasons why he's never been able to become prime minister, at least in, in my reading of it, is that he is seen as that he wants it too much. Ah. So, you know, like it is uncouth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It may not be true, but that's one of the ways in which your reputation is besmirched, as in you, you want to stand out too much, you want to be too excellent. And it's to do with ideas of civility and like. There's often an argument when somebody's entering a house. Who please enter first? Please enter mm-hmm. first. But in in I mean in Chinese culture the equivalent is like an, the argument of who's going to pay for dinner. Yes. Yeah. So I think there is an element of that. Or you say you're going to the bathroom, but really you're paying for the check. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like you're trying to, you need to demonstrate humility mm-hmm. or like. Uh, self-sacrifice mm-hmm. and that's the way to sort of social political ascension mm-hmm. so if you're too smart the king's gonna kill you <laughs> you're too smart don't be too smart i did have another question about the swordfish and this is this is a departure but my first thought when i read this story about the swordfish was there's also a swordfish that comes onto land in one of your zines in upper Heleng. right and i was wondering if there's <laughs> any connection like is there like a tradition of this kind of thing or did is this a completely separate idea that you had i wasn't thinking of the 
sort of invading Singapore thing when I was writing that that particular character. In fact, the uh, that particular character I was thinking about. There is a figure called Badang, who is a sort of like myth folklore hero, sort of strongman. Mm-hmm. And the source of his strength is that he eats a creature's warm magical warm myth, mm-hmm. and so it get, gives this fabulous strength. So that's where it's come, it comes from. So I just was like, oh yeah, it should be a fish because it's fun to see a fish totally away from any sort of water source, a sea fish. And obviously it talks because why wouldn't you have an animal that is that yeah. is a person? Yes, you know? yes. I have noticed that's also a theme. Is there are mm-hmm. like talking monkeys and you have the whole uh, setting of, of uh, monitor lizards. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mankao is a committed vegetarian because he just likes animals. So he yeah. likes drawing them. <laughs> so. On the subject of folklore, because I, I do remember that story with the, the strong man and the vomics. That's also in, in the annals, if any of the readers mm-hmm. want to look it yes. up. I know from some of your other writing that you are very interested in the folklore of your region as opposed to like the... The literature, the printed literature. Because <laughs> the literature is so difficult to read. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's mainly, that's mainly the thing. Uh, but, but could you tell us something about, about the folklore and maybe how it contrasts to uh, the admittedly difficult to read literature? Um, it's interesting because a lot of these folk stories do, like, Badang is in, the Singapore Radi Toda is in these texts, right? So it's interesting that the court sort of the literature of the court includes the literature of the people or the, the stories of the people. Mm-hmm. I would say that the sort of like folk stories are like like these or they tend to all kind of be like this. The strong man eating somebody's vomit or like... So it's a, a lot of these and I don't know whether... So fairy tales are also compiled in the process... But you get the canon of fairy tales by a process of compilation mm-hmm. in the sort of late... So early modern, whenever it is that people started compiling stories. Early modern is probably accurate. I think the Brothers Grimm were early 18th century, and that's the touchstone yep. most of our audience would have. Yep. So I don't think there has been a sort of major process. Definitely not as all-encompassing as like something like what the Brothers Grimm did, or Calvino's sort of Italian folk tales. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know much about... The, the short answer is I don't know much about it. It's like, it really is... So, Makai and I always talk about the fact that we say we're doing research, but actually we're just collecting trivia from all these books. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of the ethnographies we read about, like, textile culture or, like, book-building culture or, like, architectural culture, like, I've got this, I've got this little book here that is about the... Traditional architecture about my home state, and it's it's saying how like this canop- traditional canopy in one of these kampung houses hung over the dais of honor in the house is a reference to a story about the daughter of the mythical founder of the Minangkabau people, who was the only one of his children to step into the water to guide his boat to launch his boat into the sea. So there's that wow. kind of like that's that's how I get the folklore, I guess. Through through these like little stories about okay what why is this name this way why is this name this way kind of jumping onto that because that's a theme that I love talking about the Irish have a term for that called Dunshanakas, which is the place wisdom of that that place and something that I especially noticed in the annals I think we we've got the establishment of Singapore and I believe Sumatra is how these places get their names. And is that something that is something that comes from a more oral tradition that is then passed down and eventually written or something that is more folklore or 
Can you talk about that as one of the themes of the annals? Because that's one of the things that I noticed. I have, I have two questions. Like, I'm, I'm really curious to know about this Irish sort of tradition. Sure, sure. So that's my first question. Denshanicus in particular, the Irish love the land. They're very, very connected to the Emerald Isle. And so in, for instance, the Toynbukuling, which is one of the major Irish epics, it's sort of the Irish equivalent of the Malay Annals. We see the hero Cucullan going through different places and a king and a queen trying to meet him so that they fight in a war. And as they go through, the major part of the story is them going across Ireland and saying, okay, we went to this hill and this event happened there and that's how this place got its name. Mm-hmm. Rather than it being um, sort of a conquesting story, it's more about, okay, we're going to talk about the hero Cullen, but we're also going to talk about this hill over here and this river and that's how this place got its name or this magical event right, happened, right, so right. on and so forth. And so when I see things like that, particularly with like how Singapore got its name and the, the lion appeared and so on, I see a major similarity there in terms of how the people understand and value the land. And in particular, for the annals, how they value the living creatures on that land. Right, right. Because for the for the Irish, it's it's much more about like, ah, yes, we have a hill or we have this old rock and we like this old rock. But for the annals, it's much more like, let's talk about the swordfish. Let's talk about the tiger. Right, right, right. So I guess to, to connect those in that way, the place wisdom and the place naming seems very similar to me. The, I mean, it's, it's striking the idea that you know like there's this epic about your central hero or your sort of national or sort of cultural hero but really the journey allows for insights about places mm-hmm. that predate this so like this hero is not the creator or like the originator of our nation our nation was old and not ours there were people there before uh, and i think that's kind of true about the way we relate to geography here Maybe there's not as much of a focus on geographical formations because of just purely because of the way the landscape works. Uh, my partner, who is a visual artist, has this observation. Uh, Sharon, my partner, Sharon Jin, that a lot of regional art is pretty flat. Mm. It's because when you look at a jungle, it's hard to see the vanishing horizon. Right. There is, of course, the vanishing horizon because the sea is obviously the other element of our landscape, but. You turn her from the sort of sea and the sort of horizon, the flat horizon, as far as the eye can see. You turn around, you look at the beach. Past the beach is just like trees, 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 trees. trees. <laughs> so it's hard to see, to sort of pick up geographical locations. Even on to this day, it's hard to clear land. Mm-hmm. Like an empty lot opposite my house is overgrown in, in three months. And people used to travel by boat. That was the road because you couldn't build a road. Mm. How are you going to maintain it? Yeah, so I think there's a lot more emphasis on like this particular tree or the the, the tigers of this particular area. Or, uh, I don't know whether that answered your question, but no, no, it's yeah. very good. Again, for context for the reader, one of the stories the stories we're talking about is a uh, Singapore is so named because the people who landed there to found the city saw a lion there and felt that was like auspicious. Mm. Mm-hmm. This is the reason why there's the huge merlion in the Bay of Singapore. Yes, oh. so there's that yep. merlion that's like spewing water all the time. That's oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I have seen pictures. Of that. I did not make that <laughs> connection at all. <laughs> okay, I, I noticed in the sort of list of questions that you turned the question about Kalang Kalang. Yes, what is that? 
So I had to look it up because I obviously don't remember it from the book. So I googled it, right? So Google has, Google has all the answers. So this is an answer from Google, but it seems... So the, the passage that I found was that Kalang Kalang is sea cucumber, and it refers to it. I bring it up because it is a story about uh, this man who constantly was fishing up sea cucumber. He was very annoyed. And then he, so he bought them to eat. And then when he bought them, it, they became gold. So I was like, wow, right? This is a, this is great. Like, so I'm, I'll become rich. So he had a brother who would eat sea cucumber. I think he attacked or killed his brother over sea cucumber because like, these things are uh, like our windfall. Why are you eating them? Not eat them. Oh. And so there's that, there's this, and the reason how it relates to the idea of place names is that at the end of the passage that I found is that, and this is why that particular field of that particular place is now known as Padang Karangkala. So field Interesting. Of I had also Googled it, but I was only about 50% sure that they were sea cucumbers because <laughs> when, when I Googled it, most of the results was that there's a place called Kalang Kalang. In yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that's not helpful. And our old British translation did tell us that uh, Kalang Kalang is the same as Biche du Mer or some French phrase. Oh, no. Which means sea cucumber. But I was like, can I really trust something that I had to translate twice? <laughs> These are the kind of sources I have to deal with also because, and so like, I think a big thing that what Manka and I do is that we play around with these stories because in the, all the, all the ethnographies are by British administrators, for example. So it's like, how, how much can you believe them? Mm-hmm. And, the, and the other thing also is that when local people tell British administrators these stories, I want to believe that there's impish qualities. You want to hear an exotic story about how we're all like fucking afraid of like weird tigers. So I'm going to say that my grandfather is a weird tiger because like, why not? I want to tell you a good story and I want to entertain myself. Mm-hmm. I want to believe at least that there's a culture jamming going on. Mm-hmm. It's an excuse to make fantasy. There is a famous story in uh, linguistics about, I think he was American rather than British, but some Western linguist who goes out to the Pacific Islands looking for new languages to record, and some guy says, well, look, my grandfather is the last living speaker of his native language, so why don't you come like record what he has to say? And so for an entire year, this like American linguist is trying to get the details of this language from this old man and paying him for his for his time (laughs) and when he finally like compiles it all and takes it back he and his like colleagues look over it and realize that this is very clearly a completely made-up language like there's there's no (laughs) irregular verbs there's like all the things that happen naturally as a language develops are absent it's the kind of language that you would make up whole cloth Mm -hmm. and so this this guy was just telling him nonsense for a whole year Amazing. Like, gotta get paid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I don't know, that's, that's what that made me think of. And it, it, that makes me think that maybe there is some culture jamming going on when, mm-hmm. like, the, the ethnographers and the, and the folklorists come around and say, like, tell us, tell us your traditional stories. And, like, have I got a story for you? <laughs> In a more serious context, I was, like, one of our zines, Upper Heleng, is, is very much inspired by a, a sort of ethnographic text about the sort of Batik nomadic, forest nomadic people. It's by this like couple who are both anthropologists who lived with the, that particular sort of like uh, community for a few years, and you know it's a very fascinating study of the community, and also like wow, these people are so egalitarian; they have no violence whatsoever. Like it seems like a particular kind of ideal idealized lifestyle. And then later on, like Mankao and I met this. So Dr. Colin is a 
is a lo local sort of like he runs a sort of indigenous people sort of like advocacy group. They do a lot of like political because there's a great deal of indigenous oppression of indigenous peoples in Malaysia. And he's saying that yeah, yeah, you know, the the book is generally true, but also you want to read it with like your people will be people, mm -hmm. and you, the people who go and study a particular community bring with them what they want to see. So I thought that was an interesting reminder. Sorry, uh, that was a, another tangent. It was an interesting tangent. All tangents the tangents are fine. We go on tangents all the time. All the time. Related to what we were just talking about, uh, it, it seems like a lot of A Thousand Thousand Islands is strongly linked to colonialism or the resistance of colonialism. Is, is this an accurate characterization? And if so, would you like to tell us more about it? To a large degree, it's unavoidable because my life is so influenced. Like, I speak English because that's the reason my town is called Port Dixon because Frederick Dixon was a administrator. I can't really sort of distance myself from it. The work will always be informed by colonialism, I guess. And also sort of like I like we were talking earlier about the ethno-nationalist tendencies, it also is about that because it's so important, at least from Macau and I's view, that we don't... It feels boring to only have the careers in our imagination. It feels boring to us. And so we are doing a f favor for ourselves. So I guess... If the zines and the work in the zines is a reaction to forces like colonialism and nationalism in a sort of like trying to repudiate, I guess, rebut, mm -hmm. by not rebutting. So one of the things we've, we've, we decided very early on is that in none of the zines uh, will we have a sort of occidental-ish, off-screen sort of empire about to encroach mm -hmm. because every other kind of every other form of fiction in this region has had that as a sort of boogeyman because mm -hmm. it's it's obvious mm -hmm. so it's like why not if we are going to recenter ourselves we should recenter ourselves in the way that the culture in our myth history did which is like yeah Ferengi datang Ferengi the Portuguese have arrived they were they were around the region for a long while before the fall of Malacca. Before that, you know, you have the Mongol invasion of Java. And yeah, but, you know, like, these are not the important bits of the story. The stories are here. Mm -hmm. Who, who's here right now? And if they do arrive, they arrive as visitors mm -hmm. and they learn how to live with us. It's not like an existential... So it's denying the sort of existential... Destruction that comes later, I guess, is part of the point. I think that's very, very well carried across. As I was reading it, it felt very much like I was a visitor. And at least for me, it was it was less sword and sorcery, of course, and more like, let's explore what's behind each new curve, each new path. And how can I interact and understand who these people are and what their setting is in particular? Mm. That's especially how I read it. And I right. suppose one of my bigger questions, especially now, since you, you've had these zines, but now you're also doing The Reach of the Roach God, which looks fantastic. And I was wondering, because people are going to ask, what is the narrative of this setting? And I think right. one of the greatest things that you've done is that you have been very resistant to creating, quote unquote, a narrative or like a set storyline mm. that you have to follow, which every, I mean, theoretically, every good R RPG should do that. But Western storytelling is very much, ah, uh, yes, here's our three-act structure, one, two, three. Mm. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could talk about what your approach was in terms of creating this narrative, because it does feel like a collection right. of islands and almost like a collection of little chapters that you string together rather than one big 
you know, sword and sorcery, I'm going to defeat the evil king sort of story. So how does that fit in both with the zines and in Reach of the Roach God, which is a much bigger project? It occurs to me, like, with regards to what we were talking about previously, that the, that the zines can be explored in game as a series of tangents mm. that you're like, what's the word for it in like sort of OSR terms? Uh, it's a picaresque, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, every island is its own like, what's the deal here? And you get like distracted. So it's every island is a distraction from everyone else. Um, the overarching thing in Reach of the Roach God is because it's our underdark. Mm-hmm. It is... Uh, it's inspired by caves of Southeast Asia. I mean, that it's relatively harder because a lot of the cave cultures in Southeast Asia are not so well known. Like one of the biggest cave systems in the world is found in Vietnam, and that was only discovered in the nineties, like by local people. You know, like a so yeah, it's it's going to be a challenge. But how we've we've approached it is that the book will be a, a sort of anthology in a sense of like three three zines. So. Our zines, every zine is kind of like a gazetteer of a place mm-hmm. or a people or a culture. So, like, there will be three cultures that are based underground in these sort of like. And uh, we're thinking of the sort of cave systems as islands mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, there is a narrative in the sense that all these cultures are touched by roaches because mm-hmm. uh, there's always a roach somewhere uh, in a cave. We are writing slash illustrating our deepest fear. <laughs> So like I, I, I fear roaches and Mankal fears roaches. Oh, and Grace, wow. who is managing our project, also fears roaches. It's like a phobia, so... Did you pick roaches because it was something that you all find unsettling, or was that just an unfortunate accident that now you have to stare at roaches all day? <laughs> Mankal started drawing roaches because there are roaches in caves, and he saw lots of roaches when he sort of visited some caves. I mean, every cave that has swiftlets or bats in them will have like guano and roaches. I'm not sure exactly why he kept drawing them, but because he kept drawing them, I sort of started thinking about them and started writing about them. I think it was there were more spiders before because I think it's the more obvious creature. Mm-hmm. But then as we as we sort of worked together, it became more the more and more roaches. There's another drawing of a roach. There's another story about how we can make a roach even more gross and disgusting. So, <laughs> yeah. Besides, you, you can't lean on the spider theme too hard because the Underdark already did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Very cool. And I think the wish up. A lot of the zines come, as much as they come from the stuff that, the stories that inspire us, they, they come from quite personal places often. Personal experiences in a particular, with a particular, visiting a particular town or a particular market or, so that we often rely on that personal reaction and roaches are personal to us. As much as I hate <laughs> to say that. Something you mentioned kind of in passing there brings up something else I wanted to ask about. Uh, how do you see your work as situated in relation to other current RPG, I don't know how to, how to, how to phrase it, uh, schools of thought, like the OSR? I enjoy the sort of old school style most because that's why I enjoy playing. So when I write personally, I think about what would be useful for that. But ultimately, it comes from... Because we write... Marco and I write and design and think and make art for sort of things that don't have systems necessarily. All the zines are agnostic in that sense. So we, after a while, it just becomes like what would be interesting here. And then you fall back to the sort of rules of good storytelling or good writing. Like what would be interesting? What would be, what sounds, what is the poetry of this? And what is the, how do you hook up fire and imagination? 
it is all about that. And because that's the underlying thing, it's always gratifying to hear when people say, hey, I used, uh, I played your game in Trophy or in like as a version of Fall of Magic or a number of different kinds of like uh, storytelling slash RPG systems, which I have never played and they work fine. Is that because you're, I mean, it, it is much less mechanics oriented but is that something that you feel comes from the universality of stories that you don't particularly feel like you need a setting for this or or why where did that decision come from i, I suppose when i say like they they don't have mechanics it's like i should clarify that this there is a system in the books and the system mm-hmm. is a kind of like principles of storytelling thing as opposed mm-hmm. to like what dice you roll or what number these the, these set attributes have. What's your modifier? Plus three, plus seven. <laughs> really, if there there is a sense of design in, the, in how we... Because when I'm writing a Brandon table, for example, it's always like, what would a traveler do with this information? All the zines have lists of trade goods because they are... I'm thinking about what what would the people here have that other people might find useful and indirectly that answers a sort of mechanical like a games question Mm -hmm. why are you there Mm -hmm. it is very intentional that there is no set like a rule set will have gp as a sort of like common abstract denominator value it is it is a design decision as much as a storytelling decision that there is no one currency across the across the islands because one that's the idea of a modern currency is very historical and it's not interesting because it's way more interesting for you to have to negotiate value mm-hmm. over a thing that you know like one of the trade goods is like nails that if you build a ship with it, the ship will never sink. Mm-hmm. That has a that has a mechanical in the game that has meaning, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it has no numbers to it. There's no system to it, but it is it is designed mm-hmm. so that I guess I don't know whether I answered the question, but that's that's uh, the design work. Oh, it it definitely answers the question. And I think one of the things that Mac and I have talked about previously is one of the things Mac has been particularly interested in and like, let's create a leech class. And what would that look like when you're not necessarily relying on magic as much for those things? Or how do you, how do you gather mm. resources for that? And mm. one of the things that we've sort of bumped into is, okay, some people at their table would find that incredibly boring. And pedantic, what do you mean I have to, you know, make sure I have the right yeah, number yeah, yeah, of, yeah, you know, yeah. why do I have True. to find this, er, blah, blah, blah. And for other people, uh, and something that I think A Thousand Thousand Islands does very well is you have to negotiate value, as, as you said. So, like, with those nails, it's a matter of, okay, well, if you're dealing with someone who is not interested in the water, who is lives on a mountaintop, exactly. they're not going to need all of these nails and so it's not going to work as a trade good as well, or you're going to have to add something onto that. And so I think that as wonderful as the OSR and old school renaissance, you know, style of gaming is, if we start broadening our perspective, which I think A Thousand Thousand Islands achieves masterfully, is how can we get away from the tables um, or rather, not the tables, but the rule sets, yeah, and how do we inspire? Yeah, tables are great, uh, but how do we how do we get away from the the rule sets and start inspiring people to start playing around more with the dynamics of what you can do in that world? Yeah. I so our approach to the zines, the zines are textually very lean, mm-hmm. and like zines typically have six trade goods. Like these are not. 
the only six things you can find here. You're going to find food, you're going to find wood, you're going to find like sort of the necessities that we don't have to talk about because they're not interesting to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, it's in terms of that, what you were talking about earlier, like the mechanics of things, I think a lot of... I'm, I don't write systems, so it's not really my set problem set to deal with. I write sort of adventures. Mm-hmm. So how much a single nail that is not one of these like special shipwreck nails costs is not important for me to define right and that's for your gm to to decide wherever you are Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and whatever game you're playing whether or not that has value i'm here to provide not a list of list of all the medicinal herbs in the world Mm -hmm. but the list of this particular medicinal herb here that is as much as i can make it irresistible to like a player character like like a bunch of players like I really want this because for some reason, you know, like, you know, like the shaman has to f*** a tree to get this thing, you know, like, and, you know, that's for whatever reason that feels interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. You got to get the grabby hands. You want them to, you yeah. want them to act with yeah, it. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. They need it. They don't know why they need it, but they need it. Yeah. And th- so that addresses that, that sort of thing about would players find it boring, mm-hmm. but also like in talking about what you you sort of brought up like the herbalist primer is completely system agnostic and it's one of the biggest kickstarters recently so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there at least is some interest in people who want to go out and search for herbs. right right I'm just mad they beat me to it <laughs> <laughs> all right we're running up against the time at which we would usually stop yes so a closing uh thing i guess this is kind of a two-part question first what are things that you would want people to know about and take away from, like, t- take into themselves concerning your work on A Thousand Thousand Islands? And second, where can they find Thousand Thousand Islands and Reach of a Roach God so that they can give you oh. their money in exchange for it? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> so I think the biggest thing that I want people to know, and we often get asked this question, is like, oh, I don't know anything about Southeast Asia at all. I'm afraid to run a game with your books. It's like, if you don't run a game without books, books have failed. Like, uh, I would really like people to understand that uh, that we write as an invitation. We make things that are invitations because they are invitations to ourselves. We are in as in the dark about our own culture as anybody else. So yeah, um, I want... I just want people to be reassured. Like it doesn't matter to me whether you misrepresent my culture. What happens at your table is your table. But you have made the effort to at least come to my table for a while. And that's that's great. I don't know. Yeah. Our zines can be found from a thousand thousand islands dot com. And the Kickstarter for Reach of a Roach God is found at bit.ly slash rotrog R O T R G. There are fourteen days left in the campaign. Slightly fewer by the yeah, slightly fewer by the time this is released, but I believe it closes on December eighth. Yes, yes, yep. Yes. And I would definitely encourage all of our listeners to back it. I already have. Yeah, I am a we, poor grad we both student, have. <laughs> so I could only Thank argue you. myself Thank up you. to to get the tier where I get a physical copy of the book. None of the fancy stuff. No, the fancy stuff is all gone. Like I, I believe it's all gone anyway. Because like uh, I don't know, people people want Makas art. So it's very nice art. It's really cool. It's beautiful. All right. Yeah, no, definitely. Please, please go support A Thousand Thousand Islands and Reach of a Roach God. It's super stuff. And hopefully this sort of gives you a better idea, listeners, of 
where these stories come from and what that rich culture is so that when you do either get the copy of the zines or get a copy of the book, you can appreciate it in full and have a have a bigger understanding and the islands are a little bit more fleshed out. They have a couple more animals for you to explore. Uh, yeah, hopefully. Any takeaways? I guess we'll do takeaways now. I think one of the most interesting things that Zedek talked about was the idea that you shouldn't be afraid to engage with this world and this culture. And especially coming from a Western perspective, I've always been very, very nervous to incorporate anything outside of, you know, quote unquote, my area of expertise, which is medieval European history, because I don't want to appropriate it or misuse it in a way. And of course, that comes down to doing excellent research. But his approach was just so welcoming as to, you know, if you mess something up, don't worry about it. That's okay. Like, we wrote this so you can experience it and so you can understand it in the way that we want you to, or at least give you a glimpse into that. So I found that incredible. And, you know, just approach it respectfully. And I think as he said, you know, you've made the effort to come to my table for a while. And just that sort of invitation to come and sit down is what RPGs are all about. So that was really reassuring to me as someone who wants to be respectful of those cultures, but also wants to explore them in a way creatively where I can do so respectfully. Though if you're doing something for publication rather than just having fun around a gaming table with your friends, you should probably get, you know, hire someone from that culture on to help you. Like in that case, yes. maybe worry about whether you'll mess something up. And Oh, yeah, absolutely. But in terms of exploring it creatively and doing something for fun and just getting to know the culture, this is this is really, yes. really cool. Any other takeaways? I really like the idea of a... And this, this is an unusual statement for me because I love hex maps. <laughs> if I ever get around to, to writing up a full setting, or if we ever get around to writing up the setting we keep talking mm -hmm. about, I'm probably going to include a hex map. Mm -hmm. But I really liked his kind of approach of saying you don't need to map it out it doesn't matter so much where these islands are in relationship to each other because you're supposed to come to each mm -hmm. one on its own terms yeah oh definitely definitely and the cultural idea of every single land has its own gods and mind you this is not an rpg idea this is something he's talking about the culture of malaysia and the islands in southeast asia every place has its own gods, has its own people, and you have to come there and be respectful of that or else, you know, you're going to screw yourself over, like, not going to lie, like, those gods will come after you, man. But just that entire idea. I would say that idea was pretty widespread over most polytheistic cultures, to my knowledge. You, like, you do mm -hmm, kind of see mm -hmm. it in European literature that hasn't been, like, fully, fully Christianized. Like mm -hmm. in bits of the Icelandic sagas, when they're talking about a settlement, they'll occasionally talk about like uh, the local spirits. Right, right. Like every land does have its own gods, or at least that was the, mm -hmm. the polytheists' view before monotheism ruled the roost. Yes, yeah, precisely. So I found that an incredible idea. And just even some, like off the top of my head, D&D &D ideas, one of the things he talked about was oh, if you're having a spiritual ailment, you might not go to an imam or he might refer you to, a, you know, a, a Taoist monk, for instance. And I immediately went to like, oh my gosh, how did I never think of this for, you know, a, a tabletop game where your player gets hit with a certain 
malady of whatever sort and they go to their local cleric and the cleric's like i can't help you with this man you gotta go see the other guy i was absolutely having the same thought of like what if you have a curse and and, like you go to your priest and they're like i'm sorry you have to go to like a member of a rival faith like like i I know that we don't really get along with the church of what's his face but Mm -hmm. he's the only one that can help you i'm sorry Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, did you catch when he said Hungry Ghost Month? I did. I completely forgot to ask him again about what that means, but just that idea sparked so many ideas in my head of like, oh, you don't go outside at night during Hungry Ghost Month. I'm like, yeah, of course you don't. What does that mean? <laughs> I need to know. Yeah, I might need to Google that. I I also like had a moment where I was like, I should ask him what that means, and then I just forgot because we had, we had we, so much yeah, other totally stuff to forgot. say. But yeah, that was a really <laughs> we, like we have to message him. We have to ask him. That was a striking phrase and one I want to know more about. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh man! All right, so those are those are our major takeaways. <laughs> anything else before we close out? I can't think of anything. I think we got it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, right on. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. A Thousand Thousand Islands at... I haven't. I should have it. I have the Kickstarter up. Where's the Thousand Thousand Islands website? I'm so professional. There it is. Yeah, you can check out A Thousand Thousand Islands at a thousand thousand islands.com 